0: J.I. Packer, noted theologian and author, said this when people are asked what they believe in, they give not merely different answers, but different sorts of answers. As an example, someone might say, I believe in UFOs, and it means I think UFOs are real. Or I believe in doc- democracy, and that means I think democratic principles are just and beneficial. But what does it mean when Christian congregations stand and say, I believe in God? It's far more than when the object of belief is UFOs or democracy. I can believe in UFOs and never look for one. I can believe in democracy without ever voting. In cases like these, belief is merely a matter of intellect only, but the creed's opening says this, I believe in God. And it renders a Greek phrase that is coined by the writers of the New Testament, meaning literally, I am believing into God. That is to say, over and above believing certain truths about God, I am living in a relationship of commitment to God in trust and union. When they say, or when I say, I believe in God... I am professing my conviction that God has invited me to this commitment and declaring that I have accepted his invitation. The last phrase of the most familiar passage of scripture in the world says, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The question remains, and the statement of fact stands, whoever believes. Today we're going to talk about that belief and that is the title of this message. It covers a lengthy portion of scripture that we find in John's gospel in chapter 3 beginning with verse 14 and carrying through to verse 21. Lengthy not because it is uh, more words than other passages of similar uh, dimension but rather because it carries with it some of the most important and rich theological teaching that we find anywhere in the New Testament. Um, Not to move past it quickly, and that certainly is not what we will do, but at the same time, uh, I think it is important that we take all of it together in this section in order to understand that what John is doing is writing to us, not only telling us how to believe, or why we should believe, or what the consequences of unbelief might be. But he is also making a very distinct statement regarding what is belief, genuine, life-saving, redemptive, transformative belief, and what isn't. Those are the things that are at stake in this particular passage as he teaches us these things. The first thing that we note is that God extends to us an invitation to believe, We see that in verses 14 through 16. In verses 14 and 15, it comes as the conclusion of a previous paragraph, but it flows directly into the next. It says in verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John uses the phrase lifted up numerous times in his gospel, and in each case he is referring to the crucifixion. In every situation that is described in all of those particular usages of that phrase, he is reminding and calling us back to the sacrifice of Jesus that has been made for us. He uses the the ancient experience of Moses leading the people in the wilderness and then them continuing to complain and grumble. If you go back to Numbers 21 and you read the story of the bronze serpent, what you'll find is that the people had begun to complain. They hit a snag, they wanted to continue on, there was a shorter route to get them to their destination, but rather than being able to go that way, the nation through whom they were passing was Edom and they weren't allowed. They had to go all the way around. And so it was going to take a lot longer. And so they started complaining against Moses. They started complaining against God. They started denying that God even was. And eventually God's judgment fell on them. And he released venomous snakes in the camp. And hundreds, maybe thousands of them died as a result of being bitten by these snakes. The people who remained that did not die were now terrified and were also convicted of their sin. And they came to Moses and said, we've complained against you, we've murmured against God, forgive us and intercede on our behalf, which Moses did. God told him to fashion the bronze serpent, to place it on a pole and hold it in the air, and when anyone was bitten, they could look to it and live. Now think about this situation, and don't get caught up too much in the bronze serpent, because they did that too later on, and the Bible tells us that Hezekiah during his reign took it and broke it into pieces and destroyed it because the people were turning it into an idol, rather than remembering it as a marker of God's mercy and grace. There were people that were being bitten with venomous snakes, they knew they were going to die, and yet they chose to die in their rebellion rather than simply look and believe to God's redemption. That is the reality of life that we live in this world even still today. The gospel is presented and yet some are going to believe and some are not. And it doesn't matter how thorough and how complete the presentation of the consequences are. If you do not believe that the one who has given the instruction to look and believe, you won't do it. Belief is something that is going to compel faith. Genuine belief is not just mental assent. It will always be a full experience of commitment, of hope, of expectation, of freedom, and most importantly of life. The bronze serpent illustrates that, but more than anything then in verse 14 it says, in the same way the serpent was lifted up, It became an object that would give life, but it also now becomes an illustration of Jesus who will be lifted up on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin. We must all, if we are to come to salvation, ultimately look to what Jesus has done on the cross. It is not enough to be religious. It's not enough to follow the routine. It's not enough to try to compare yourself to somebody else. Ultimately, salvation will always depend on the invitation that is offered, but only through and from the cross. The necessity of the atoning work of Jesus was due to the depth of the depravity of our sin. So that the Bible tells us in this verse, he must, he must be lifted up. It reminds us that there is no other hope for salvation apart from the finished work of Jesus on the cross. But in verse 15, it says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he introduces us to two very important principles that will continue throughout the book. None of the realities of the offering or the invitation mean anything without faith. One must believe that what Jesus has done is sufficient to satisfy God's divine requirement for the penalty of sin. The offer of eternal life is very specific because it isn't always stated that way. Some translations will, all, will often use everlasting life, and many of us have memorized John 3.16 with everlasting life. What's the difference between everlasting life and eternal life? One is quantitative and the other is qualitative. Everlasting life speaks of quantity, the endurance of life, and the eternal nature of never-ending years. But eternal life is qualitative. It speaks of the quality of the life. It speaks of the experience that we gain through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that eternal life is the appropriate way to translate this because what is being conveyed is not just living forever, but it is living forever in the fullness of the purpose for which you're made in the first place. That's important. It is significant. And then the famous verse, John three sixteen, "...for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life." The word for that is in the beginning of verse 16 connects it to the two previous verses. In those verses, there is an inherent invitation to believe in Jesus for eternal life. Just as the people in the days of Moses were invited to look at the serpent that was lifted up, so also believers today are invited to look at Jesus as he's raised on the cross to be crucified and to die for our sins. The confidence to believe is found then in verse 16 through the declaration of God's redeeming love for God so loved the world. How many ways are there to preach John 3.16? There are endless ways. Endless ways. Some people will focus the attention on the love of God, and rightfully so, describing the various ways. Some people will focus on the breadth of that love. When we read, for God so loved the world, is he talking about the intensity of the love? Or is he saying, for God so loved the world, is he talking about the enormity of what he has done? Both, I believe, are in place. And in both cases, what we are seeing is the kind of full spectrum of God's love that is on display as no other place in the world can be seen than the cross of Jesus Christ. You will never truly understand what it means to believe in Jesus until you have believed because of the cross. Changes everything. Separates everything everything. The confidence then to believe in verse 16 reminds us that the invitation is built on the foundation of God's love. A man named A.M. Hunter talks about the different kinds of love that appear in the New Testament. We have the eros, which speaks of physical or sexual love. We have philia, which speaks of brotherly love or friendship love. And we have agape, which speaks of God's kind of love. He says that eros is all take. Philia is give and take. Agape is all give. It's a beautiful way to understand it in a simplified fashion. God is the origin of love. The world is the object of love. Jesus is the means of love. Faith is the reception of love. And eternal life is the result of love so that we can continue to declare God. So love the world. If you miss everything else I say, if you've missed everything I've said up to this point, hear this. Jesus' death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, an offer of grace and mercy is a personal invitation to come experience God's love. secondly, There's an explanation of why we believe in verses 17 and 18. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. Verse 17 is eminently clear regarding the purpose of the incarnation. Jesus came in order to die for our sins, not as a way of condemning us for those sins, but as a way of delivering us from sin and self. There is a reality that is contained in verse 17 that in its simplicity teaches us with very specific clarity that the whole purpose of everything that God was doing at this pivotal moment in all of human history was done in order to save, in order to redeem. We get caught, excuse me. We get caught up in all of the different purposes and, and details of faith and, and whatever else is connected to our faith experience, church and ministry and uh, missions and on and on it goes. And uh, there's so many things. Uh, I told Brenda this morning when she arrived, I said, Welcome to uh, the, uh, uh, the crazy that is our every Sunday morning. And so, you know, I, 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 I've done this so long that I've forgotten the details that are associated with it because you just sort of go through it. But, I mean, you've got, you've got 15 minutes to visit with someone to show them what's going to happen, to pray with them, uh, to get them upstairs with the assistance of others and, and have them get ready and be prepared because you've got one song, then you've got two, and then you have to be reminded that that second song has an interlude at the end of it, and that doesn't mean the song is over. There'll be a scripture read during that interlude, and then there's another part of the song. So don't come down too early because you're going to look foolish standing up there in the water in the dark. And in the midst of all of that, you've got to remember the person's name. And it doesn't matter that you know it as well as you know your own. You can forget your own name in that moment. And so we go through that and we get caught up in that. And as a result, we, we we're just focused on kind of the task at hand. But in the middle of that, in rehearsal... You say, my sister, and in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everybody cries, and God reminds us, this is not the routine. This is a relationship. This is more. This is bigger. This is why we're about this. That's what verse 17 does. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. Why? Verse 18 tells you why. The world was condemned already. Anyone who hasn't believed is condemned already. We are all born in sin. We are all sinners by nature and choice. And as a result of that sin, we stand condemned. We are strangers, aliens. We are orphans left to ourselves. We have no hope and we have no means of providing it for ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work our way back to God. We cannot earn the salvation that can only be received as a gift. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to redeem, to save us from a condition that we were already trapped in. But to anyone who doesn't believe, who's condemned already, you remain convicted of that sin. It says, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice the exclusive nature. There is no other belief that is going to save. There is only belief in the name which represents all of the work and the finished work, that is, of Jesus It is because of this that Paul would say that when we trust in Jesus Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation for whoever is in Christ Jesus. There's a tendency for us to think of the consequences of sin and the condemnation that's associated with it as being something that is applied only at the time of death. You ever try to buy something on Amazon and it says the The price is too low to advertise. So you go ahead and put that in the cart, and then we'll tell you just how low it is. Every once in a while, I do that out of curiosity, just to see how low it is. It's never low enough. Uh, But it's too low to advertise. That's nothing more than a hook. It's no different than the, the text message I got this morning, which... Uh, By the way, when I'm getting text messages at uh, near 7 o'clock, almost guaranteed that it doesn't matter what it says, I'm not going to read it. Uh, But this one was a warning. I needed to see this because my Venmo account had been hacked and there had been three attempts to try to get into it. And I thought, oh no, and then I realized, wait a minute, I don't have a Venmo account. I'm not sending anybody else money and I haven't found anybody who wants to send me any. So what do I need a Venmo account for? We often think of the consequences as something that doesn't apply until... We get to the time of death. In the meantime, we become lulled into complacency as we think there's still time to change the outcome. However, this verse teaches us that change is not something that remains future. It is something that is a reality now, for we are condemned already. Rather, we are needing salvation in this moment, not just for the final moment, not believing in Jesus, is choosing to remain in condemnation. That condemnation is a corruption that continues to drive not only the wedge between us and Christ, but the wedge between you and the Spirit so much further apart that we lose all sensibility of the hope that is found only through faith in Him. But Jesus removes the condemnation of sin, and he removes the fear of the future, and he promises eternal life. The explanation then of why we believe is clearly we believe because that's why Jesus came in the first place. Thirdly, confirmation of who has believed. Look at verses 19 through 21. this is the judgment, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. This is the judgment. Some argue that this is more of John's statement of summary than it is necessarily a continuation of Jesus' words that are spoken in connection with the previous passage. I I have no idea which one of those is true. Uh, you say, well, but the letters are in red. That's great, um, but you have to keep in mind that's an addition that was added by somebody else, and that there wasn't a red letter uh, transcript that was written in those days. What is the point? The point is, it doesn't matter. Whether Jesus spoke the words or John spoke the words, what does matter is that it provides us with a summary to remind us of all of this. And it gives a finality by identifying, it, identifying this following statement as the judgment, the conclusion, the reality. Like it or not, believe it or not, embrace it or not, it doesn't change its nature The judgment spoken of at the beginning of this verse means the conclusion of the explanation that was given in verses 17 and 18. The sense of finality to the phrase is designed to call the attention to the seriousness of the matter at hand. Jesus has come into the world. He's the light of the world. But people didn't love light. They loved darkness instead of light. How do we know? Because they acted like it. Their deeds were evil. Sin demands our allegiance. Sin demands our commitment, and if we fail to yield, forces us with fear. The works we do reveal the nature of what we truly love. And the passage says, the light has come, but the world did evil things. You may be able to stand back a little bit in in the context that we find ourselves today and consider this from the perspective of someone on the outside looking ...at what's going on to the world and then generalizing it by just talking about the world the way this passage does. And not putting the faces and the individuals to it. And you may be able to come to the conclusion this is talking about somebody else. But it's not. It's reminding all of us of the depth and depravity of our own sin... And it's reminding all of us to compare the works and the deeds that we do, the thoughts that we have, the things that we experience, the stuff that we love more than what we love Christ so often. And consider that the Bible declares those things to be evil. But he says there is an alternative. Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light because the works will be exposed there's so many running from the light remaining in the darkness hating the light because of its revelation of the of the depth of their depravity the light of truth burns the soul of evil so that that soul cannot bear it and must either extinguish the light or run and hide from it in the darkness. And yet, in spite of that, rather than running to the light and finding the redeeming work of Christ, people continue to hold on to that which can be described as nothing more than the prelude of death. But verse 21 says, whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What an interesting turn of phrase. Whoever does what is true. doesn't say whoever says what is true. It says whoever does what is true. James would certainly encourage us with this concept. And while some believe that it is limited only to what James says about faith and works, and that faith without works is useless and dead, faith demonstrated by works is genuine and true, here we see that even John, the beloved disciple, agrees with the theology. You see, what is is being brought to bear in this statement is that light is always going to lead to true stuff. True behavior, true thoughts... True experiences, true struggles, true discipleship, true evangelism, true missions. It's going to lead to true stuff, true quality and value, true biblical integrity, true, true, true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Reminds us that whoever does what is true comes to the light doesn't say whoever's perfect comes to the light. It says whoever does what is true. Maybe the most truthful thing you can do is admit that you are a sinner. Maybe the most truthful thing that you can do is admit that in your Christian experience you've struggled and you have been unsuccessful in overcoming the limitations of the problems of the conflicts. Maybe the truest thing you can do has less to do with what you do right and has a lot more to do with how you handle what you do wrong. Doesn't tell us to be perfect. It doesn't say present ourselves as something we aren't. It says be true and it means genuine. God is calling us into the light. He's calling us to walk in the light as He is in the light. He tells us over and over how to do this. And the reason we find such repetition about these things is because it's so critical and key to the effectiveness of the Christian experience, but more importantly, to the glory that is due to the one who saved us in the first place. The question is, not so much the details of what I've explained as we've gone through this passage. The question is, are you among those included when he says, whoever believes. You see, all of this means nothing until you believe into Jesus.